Grapple fans, and welcome to the first, well it wasn't intended to be the first, but that's the way technology goes sometimes, but this is the first of an intermission period in our run of Let Me Tell You Something episodes that go through all the Dave Meltzer five-star matches, where myself, Lorca Mullen, and my co-host, Simon Cross, take a little moment to debrief, to look back at what we've what we've watched so far, start to compartmentalise things, start to make an order of merit of our own. And then reach a unanimous opinion, hopefully. Or maybe not unanimous, but a, a conciliatory opinion. Um, well, I think um, some of our opinions so far have been far from unanimous. Well, that'll be say. interesting to see now. And we'll also be doing a bit of interaction with the audience. We've got a, we've got an email from a listener that we will answer. And we're also going to take a little walk down a couple of matches that aren't included on this list that maybe, just maybe, Dave Meltzer himself should reappraise his opinion on. But, uh, Simon, the first thing we're going to do is we've taken the 20 matches that we've watched so far, well, uh, 19 matches and 18 of which uh, are full length and the other one in a highlighted form. So really it's realistically of 18 matches. And we have each done an individual top 10, ranking in merit, and then we're going to try and find a unanimous definitive final five that we will say is like it's not a Mount Rushmore unless Mount Rushmore adds another one onto it um, but it's our five five star our five stars of the solar system or something like that although a solar system would only have one star so I suppose it's five stars in our galaxy <laughs> I knew where you were going with that yeah, don't worry. yeah so to give you a quick rundown a reminder of what we've done we have covered Tiger Mask versus Dynamite Kid, Kazuo Yamazaki against Nobuhiko Takada, Stan Hansen and Bruiser Brody against the Funk Brothers, Tiger Mask 2 against Kunyaki Kobayashi, Jaguar Yokota against Lioness Asuka, Jumbo Saruta and Jenichiro Tenru against Riki Toshio and Yokichaki Yatsu, Ric Flair versus Barry Windham 1 and 2, Jigusa Nagaya versus Lioness Asuka. There was a fantastic Sheep Herders match in there, but we only saw very brief highlights, so that's not really going to be applicable. And then for the next twenty, the next eleven to twenty was Akira Maeda and Nobuhiko Takada against Kijimuto and Shiro Koshinaka, Ric Flair against Barry Windham, the third and final match of that series, Genichiro Tenru and Toshiaki Kawada facing off against Stan Hansen and J- Terry Gordy, our missed episode so far where we have not yet been able to watch the first six man tags we've been given five stars where Tenru teams with Kawada and. Samson Fuyuki against Jumbo Saruta, Masanobu Fushi, and Yoshiaki Atsu. Then we had four straight Ric Flair and Ricky Steamboat matches. We had uh, Chi-Town Rumble, the um, Landover Maryland House Show fan cam footage, Clash of the Champions Sixes two out of three falls match, and then finally the Wrestle War feud capper. Uh, then we followed that up with one of the early All Japan Triple Crown matches between Jumbo Saruta and Genichiro Tenru. And then we rounded it off with the final match of 1989 as well, appropriately, as Ric Flair faced off against Terry Funk in an I Quit match. 
So, Simon, what we're going to do, I think, maybe, <clears throat> is we both give our 10s, then our 9s, then our 8s, and so on, and see where we start to match up, okay? Okie dokie. So, why don't you go first? What's your number 10? Uh, I have got, in it, 10, uh, Jaguar Yakota versus Lioness Asuka. Okay. I have the first Ric Flair and Barry Windham match at the Battle of the Belts from Florida. Number 9 for you, Simon. Uh, I have got Tenru versus Jumbo Saruta. I have got Ric Flair and Terry Funk tearing it up in their I Quit match. Number eight. Number eight for me is Flair Wyndham 1. Number eight for me is Jinichiro Tenru and Jumbo Saruta against Ricky Choshu and Yoshiaki Yatsu. Ah, Number seven for you, Simon. That is Flair Wyndham the third. The third? Yes. My next one is Genichiro Tenru against Jumbo Saruta in the Triple Crown match. You're number nine. So I think that's our right, first right. mutual one. Am I right there? Uh, second. We second. both have Flair Wyndham one. Ah, okay. Yes, yes, you're right. Yes. Number six. Number six is the third, then, of our mutual ones, because it is Saruta and Tenru versus Choshi and Yatsu. That's very interesting. So, so far, we seem to be kind of matching up uh, in the bottom, in, like, six to ten. They're kind of almost in reverse order for us, nearly. Um, my number six is your number ten, which is Linus Asuka against uh, Jaguar Yakota. So we already have four mutually agreed ones. Okay. Yes. The only one in my list that you haven't said so far is Flair Funk, and the only one on your list that I haven't said so far is Flair Wyndham 3. Flair Wyndham 3, of course, being the one of the Crockett Cup that was the fan cam footage. Yep. So we're now into the top five. Simon, what is your fifth? Uh, in at fifth, I have Tenru and Kawada versus Hansen and Gordy. We've got ourselves a match, Simon. That is my number five as well. Jinichiro Tenru and Toshiaki Kawada against Stan Hansen and Terry Gordy. Great minds do think alike. Mm-hmm. Uh, staying on the Gaijin theme, my number four is Stan Hansen and Bruiser Brody versus the Funks. Mm. My number four does also include Americans, but it's on American soil. It is Ric Flair, Barry Windham 2, the live Ooh. televised match that was live and in colour as Dusty ah. Rhodes kept saying to us. Yes. So, what was your number three, Simon? My number three is the second Flair Wyndham live and in colour. Very interesting. My number three was the Ric Flair Ricky Steamboat house show at Landover, Maryland. Oh. Okie doke. Now remind me out of the four we have seen, which number is that one? That one's the second one. Second one. That's the one that was the fan cam with some hotel information coming off the audio <laughs> at one point. I remember that one. Intriguing. So that was your number three. So my number two. And it's been really difficult for me to put these in order, but I feel I have. Uh my number two is Flare Steamboat Three. Is that the one at Clash of the Champions 6? That is Clash of the Champions 6. Two out of three falls match. Yes. That's your number two? Yeah. That's my number two as well. And let's say after three, what our number one is. 
One, two, three. Flare Steamboat at WrestleWar. That's the showdown. That's the one with the scoring system. Yeah, the final match in the series. Well, I mean, we've automatically there got four matches that are mutual that are in both of our top five. So the definitive five would include Flare Steamboat at WrestleWar, Flare Steamboat at Clash of the Champions 6, uh, Flare Wyndham 2, Lime in Colour, and both of our number fives, which is Tenru and Kawada against Hanson and Gordy. Now what's interesting though is that the other ones that are in our top five are in neither of the other ones' top ten. My number three, which is Ric Flair, Ricky Steamboat at Landover, is not in your top ten. It is not. And your number four, Stan Hansen and Bruiser Brody against the Funks, is not in my top ten. No. So then if we look at, like, your number six is my number eight. My number six is your number ten. So I guess it's just basically a question of who's going to get that fifth spot. Mm. Do we put three Flair Steamboat matches in there? I mean, it's interesting that none, neither of us included the first match, the one where Ricky Steamboat won the title. That was on the precipice with me between that and Flair Wyndham one. It could have gone either way, but yeah. I, I admired watching Ric Flair's work as the sort of subtle heel touring champion. Um, and like I said, like the, the Flair Steamboat one match felt like the precursor to something bigger, like it was, it was just the start of something. Yes, no, I completely agree. It's why it's not on my list. Um, oh, it's a really difficult one because we do broadly agree, and we never usually get this, but we don't just agree enough. Yeah. Eight of our eight of our matches are mm-hmm. mutual. The only other one I have Flair Funk at number nine. You're not. You don't have that in your top ten. And no. You have Flair Wyndham three at number seven, and I don't have that in my list. Yeah, I feel like. We've already got Flair Wyndham. Flair's in four of these matches. Uh, Flair's in three of these matches in the top five. I mean, Flair's in all of my top four matches, um, and he's in, and he's in the top three of your match. So he's, he Flair's is. in my, all of my top four. He's in all of your top threes. So I don't think we need to have Flair in again. No. So I would say, well, that disqualifies Flair, Steamboat, Landover, my number three. Yeah. Um. But, uh, but I as... don't. I don't think it's right to have your handsome Brody Funks match in there if it's not in my top ten. I I, I respect that. I respect that. Um, and so that also knocks out Flair Funk. Well, that Flair had already disqualified and Flair. And also Funk. knocks out Flair Wyndham three. Yeah. So what we're looking at here are the four matches that are in our mutuals six to ten, which are Linus Asker against Jaguar Yakota, My six, your ten. Yep. Tenru against Saruta, my seven, your nine. Yep. Um, Saruta, Tenru against Choshu, Yatsu, my eight, your six. And Flair Wyndham one, which is my ten, your eight. But we also were saying we've had enough Flair, so I guess that eliminates that one as well. So it's a, it's a freeway dance, basically. Yeah. It's basically... So we've got, we've got three NWA matches in that list, and we've got one All Japan match. The three that we're deciding between here are two All Japan matches and one All Japan women match, a Joshi mm. match. It would be nice to have a Joshi match in there, I think. Yeah, I even though it is my number 10, um, I, I, I do tend to agree with you because 
Uh, we covered it when we talked about it, but this was like a seminal moment. And um, if we wanna, if we want to go purely mathematic, if we take it as like six and a ten, and then we add it up, and which one's got the lowest total? If you add the the rankings, yeah. Yukota Asuka and Tenru Saruta both come to 16, but Saruta, Tenru, Choshu, Yatsu comes to 14. So if you're doing it on a strict mathematical points-based system, then Saruta, Tenru, Choshu, Yatsu goes in as the fifth spot. See, I'd be... This is the problem now. I'd be happy with any of these as a Mm. fifth. Mm. Because Tenru, Saruta is kind of the closest thing to a mutual, like... We, you know, it's higher up on, like, you know what I mean? It's not two yeah. tens and sixes and eights and sixes, a seven and a nine is kind of a bit more balanced. I mean, but I... to be fair, this is also when we do, when we reach match 30, this will also be the first match to be knocked out of the top five as well. So it's period in the, in the, in the uh, higher echelon is going to be short lived anyway. So it's kind of a bit. Almost a bit pointless. <laughs> it's a bit moot, yeah. But, it, you know... It's it, like it's... that one Lotus car that gets uh, points in Formula 1 at one, one on one race. Uh, that's an incredibly 90s reference. I don't. That was when I last was watching Formula 1, <laughs> so I don't know if Lotus even exists anymore. Arrows or something like that. <laughs> Arrows is an early noughties reference. They haven't been around for that well, while. They were, the, they were the group that Damon Hill left Williams for after he'd won the World Championships. That was my era, Damon Hill and Michael Schumacher. Ah, okay. Uh, Jacques Villeneuve. That's a call. That's a callback. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think we go with the lowest mathematical denominator so being Tenru Saruta against Choshu Yatsu. Yes. Uh, yeah, I'm okay with that. Yeah. So, the, and we can but, also but... order these as well, really. <clears throat> yeah. So we have the same number one. So that that's so basically academic. to give to give you an idea. So our five, our definitive five, and we can even rank these: the fifth best, fourth best, whatever. They would be at number five: Jumbo Saruta and Genichiro Tenru against Ricky Chashu and Yoshiaki Yatsu. Yes. Number four is Genichiro Tenru again and Toshiaki Kawada against Stan Hansen and Terry Gordy. Yep. Number three is Ric Flair against Barry Windham, the second match in that series. Yes. The one that took place on the... In live second, and living colour. 2nd of January or 1st of February. One of those two. Um, American Day. Yeah. <laughs> well, they're stupid, that's why. Um, number two is Ric Flair, Ricky Steamboat, the two adds three falls match at Clash of Champions 6. I gave it five stars. You didn't. We argued a while about that but what was always really never in doubt was our number one was the one match that you have given five stars to the second match i gave five stars to and that's rick flair against ricky steamboat at wrestle war 89 the stars don't lie baby mm. and it is you know it is like i said at the time it's kind of the citizen kane of wrestling matches in many ways it, 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 for the longest time the unquestioned this is the gold standard of wrestling in the modern context. Yeah, I, I loved it at the time. I, I love it what, now. in 1989 you loved it? When yeah. You were minus however many years two. old. Minus no, two. No, and I mean, like, when I first watched it, I loved it. And you know when, like, you, you see things and you're like, oh, yeah, that was good. And then you, 
you reflect, and actually, like the the rose comes off, yeah. rose tint comes off the glasses. Even then, yeah, yeah. Films that, films that improve, or albums that improve, or TV shows. Well, TV shows are a bit harder to watch a second time around if you're watching a whole series, but you know, or sh- or shows that get better as the series progresses. Yeah, and you realise there were depths to what you saw already. You know. Like every film, every film that I've given five stars to this decade are films that I've gone back to, and they've either been even better. Well, that's usually it. They're even better the second time round. Like there are films I give nine out of ten to, and they're fantastic when I see them the first time, and they're still good, but they don't they don't reveal new things to me. Mm. Whereas the five, the six that I've seen that I've given five stars to are films that reward me more as I, even when i'm thinking about it actually one of the six i probably haven't seen twice at the cinema which is holy motors but it's lingered in the mind and clips that i've watched of it online and everything you know i might as well say it now because otherwise there's just no point saying it otherwise my my six five star matches of this deck five star movies of this decade <laughs> five star matches of this decade i'm gonna hold out on you know you're gonna have to see um but and over yeah to give you an idea of my movie tastes it's um Toy Story 3, The Lego Movie, Manchester by the Sea, Holy Motors, The Social Network, and Drive. Those are the six films I've seen this decade that I would give the full 10 out of 10. I have seen exactly 50% of those. Uh Uh-huh. And they're the three you'd exactly expect. I'm guessing Lego Movie, Toy Story, and Social Network. Boom. Wait. I know you better than you know yourself, Simon. (laughs) So that's part one of our little, um, uh, part one of these reviews uh, episodes, every ten episodes. We did record a top ten. Well, we recorded a mutual top five and then a definitive five uh, when we'd done ten episodes. And in case you're curious, I think the ones that we settled on were Flair Windham 2, uh, Tenru Saruta, Choshu Yatsu, Yokota Asuka, uh, Flair Windham 1. And Stan Hansen and Brody against the Funks. I think they were the five that we went for. So that is markedly different already. Mm. I think only one survived. Uh, Saruta and Tenru, Choshu Yatsu, yeah. But that's because then we just got the Flair Windham 2. Then we just got the Flair... So we got two. Two survived. Flair Windham 2 and and Saruta Tenru. Ah, But then the Steamboat Flair matches, you know, made their impact. Absolutely bossed it. Yeah, like I said, I mean, they made up three of they made up my top three three of those matches made up my top three but strangely the fourth one i didn't put in the top 10 i guess maybe maybe critically it is better than some of the matches that are in my top 10 but i thought as i was writing out if they're the top three i can't have this make up 40 percent of my list so let's give some other matches a try even if the majority of them will have rick flair in them yeah. Uh, to be honest, I didn't know I was that big a Ric Flair fan, almost. <laughs> well, no, you Because I grew up um, as a wrestling fan, and it was by this stage when I started watching wrestling where Flair. Um, was almost a parody of himself? Yeah, he, he was at that stage at this yeah. point, I would say. And then he, then he really lent into it. I, I was at the start when he started to parody himself. Yeah. Like, well, one of the. What's so interesting when you're watching these matches of like him hitting the top root moves half the time? Yeah, you know. And then like you hear he's never hit the top rope. Well, he has. You realise he did a lot. Yeah. Well, you had to. Like, I think at least once. If you're gonna have a 55 minute match. Yeah, you're gonna have to get some success. <laughs> mm-hmm. So um, that's part one. Now 
One of the, the other thing that we recorded for the top ten for the tenth episode uh, originally was us taking a match from around the era of those first ten matches that Dave Meltzer didn't give five stars to, that maybe one or both of us believe should have five stars, or one that's culturally significant enough to give five stars. We're not going to... We, we talked the arse off of it last time, and unfortunately that's just going to be lost in the ether, so this may not be as long a discussion, because I'll be honest with you, I haven't rewatched it since then, so it's not as fresh in my mind as it was when we first recorded <coughs> this. But uh, to give you an idea of the range of dates... Tiger Mask Dynamite Kid was April 1983, and Nagayo Asuka, uh, the um, Crush Gals Explode match, was February of 1987. And so, re- within that time period, although we're going a bit after that with one of the two matches we debated having in it, uh, and I think you'll figure out which one it is, it's a match that Dave Meltzer gave four and a half stars we considered doing, which was Ricky Steamboat versus Randy Savage at WrestleMania 3. And it was between that and a match a bit earlier in this run, right slap bang in the middle, basically, between 5 and 6, from Starcade 85, or was it 84? I think it was 85, I think. think I'll just consult my notes very quickly. Um, And that was the... 85. 85. So, yeah, pretty much right in between uh, episodes, matches 5 and 6, if uh, Meltzer had given it 5 stars, would have been there which was the match that we are going to discuss. And that is the I Quit Steel Cage match between Magnum TA and Tully Blanchard for the NWA United States Championship. Now, now sorry, go on, sorry. I, was, I think I was about to say what you were about to say, so let's let's see how... Well, we both said well now, so... There we go. Um, now, this is a match you have already alluded to in um, discussion about the cage match as a genre of yes. match. It was in my Mount Rushmore matches uh, for the cage. It wasn't in yours because I guess you hadn't seen it yet. I didn't have the uh, the gift of knowledge at that point. No. Uh, had we, if we but record... I bequeathed it to you, Simon. Yeah. And if we, we uh, recorded it today, uh, that very same cage match around Mount Rushmore, this, is, this would be in it. It would. It would. Well, to me, I think this is what cage matches should be, especially in the old school version of it, because the one rule, and I said it in that episode, the one rule I've never got about the steel cage match is the escape rule. If you hate someone to the point that you have to fight in a cage and that's because you need to be contained, why should the winner be the one that essentially runs away? Yeah. When you look at it. Now, there are other ways of looking at it. Like when Bruno Sammartino had his infamous steel cage match with Larry Zabisco, he just beat the shit out of him, left him a bloody pulp, and calmly walked out of the ring and out through the cage door. That makes sense. But to me, the stipulations of the I Quit match make more sense within the realm of a steel cage match. And ultimately, that was also the rules for the War Games matches as the WCW NWA versions had which was submissions, but we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. Um, so, to me, it seems like you should just be beating someone up to the point that, and it's a, a few that has to be settled, well, it can only be settled by one guy giving up. Seems to me, it makes sense. It makes sense. It's it's weird, because you'd think the natural progression from that um, beyond war games would be to have like a, a Hell in a Cell be I quit. Mm. In theory. Yeah. Because uh, that had a roof on it, so that took a well. That allegedly, yeah. But they, you know, we'll, we'll again, we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. Let's yeah. let's keep it on this match as much as we can, because True. this match is barely any wrestling in it. It is a no. real 
fight. Like there are moments when they are just it's almost like an MMA mm. without without the without the scientific technique. They're well, just I'd... on top of each other on the on the mats punching each other. Yeah. I had one of my sort of debates I have with like sort of stuff like this. Uh, um there are certain matches that are more angles than they are matches and mm. I was thinking is 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 this is this more an angle than a match? Because I'm not seeing a lot of physical wrestling moves. Am I being too pedantic? But I think it's just something that's doing almost a... Not a subversion a, not, of itself. Not, I don't know if a subversion is the right way of doing it. It's just presenting a wrestling match in a, in a legitimate way that just is rarely done. And maybe it's rarely done. The fact that it's rarely done makes this match feel all the more special. Well, what it's I mean a, is... The, the the hatred between the two of them went beyond wrestling and yeah. and rest and like the athletic sport of wrestling and had just become a fight. Yeah, because Tully Blanchard's an amazing mat, uh, in-ring technician. You just have to look at some of the work he did with Arn Anderson in particular to see what an amazing wrestler he is. Magnum TA was a star. He was a southern NWA wrestling version of Hulk Hogan. You know, he's handsome in a Tom Selleck, Burt Reynolds 80s kind of way. He's built, but he's Which was not... in then. Yes. Uh, he was built, but he wasn't built to absurd proportions like the WWF was. Um, yeah, he was just, he was a movie star. He was a, he was the perfect baby face for that kind of region. Um, now, obviously he's one of the great what could have been i think at this point he's only in his mid-20s i think by the time the attitude era was around he would have been about four i think he was younger than hulk hogan so in theory he could have if he'd have stayed healthy been around for like the attitude era and beyond or the um massive rise of wcw depending on which side of the yeah. fence he'd have been on. well this is what i've always like everyone says what could have been he would have won the belt from uh rick flair probably at starcade 85 or 86 or whatever um, well, not eighty-five because he was doing this. Yeah, but, but yeah, eighty-six I think was when he was meant to win it, and then he he got injured late on, and Nikita Koloff, who he'd been feuding with, made the shocking babyface turn. You know, a Russian character being a babyface, even in nineteen eighty-six, as the Berlin Wall's coming closer to falling, was still a really insanely daring thing to have done. It time. takes time to turn a cultural tugboat around. Yeah, not the wrestler tugboat, of course, but. Um, Although he well, did turn eventually into a typhoon. He twisted and turned so much. Aye. <laughs> um, but what I think is... <clears throat> um, but I, I honestly, if you would say, well, if I was going to go into my crystal ball and predict what would have happened to Magnum TA, my guess is he would have won the title, but it would have been a situation like Sting or Lex Luger where eventually they would have gone back to Flair and he would have just... And my guess is... He would have ended up going to the WF at one point or another in the late 80s. And I could have seen him being slotted in the role that Kerry Von Erich took. Like getting an Intercontinental title run. Uh, but then eventually sort of falling down the card. And then maybe going back to WCW back and forth, back and forth. And never quite, you know. Maybe he would have been a star like Sting. But like Sting, he would have been able to be slotted into the US title picture just as easily when Hulk Hogan or whoever turns up or they decide to go with Ric Flair again or they're going with Vader or they're going with Ron Simmons. You know what I mean? Okay, That's what dropping. my prediction of a Magnum TA career would have become eventually. Like a bad guy gatekeeper. Yeah, yeah, he would have always been like a, t a second or third face in the company. 
Yeah. That would be Mike. And then he would get a bit older, maybe a bit less handsome, and like Barry Windham, he would eventually become a heel. And if he can, if he could do that, you know, I don't know if he would have improved as a... Well, I don't know if improved the rest is the right way to go. But he was presented in many ways like Goldberg was in that time. You know, when the squash matches would happen on NWA Worldwide, you know, World Championship Wrestling shows. Whilst all the other squash matches would be like two, three to four minutes of them showing off all their moves. With Magnum, he just catches them in a belly-to-belly and wins within 20 seconds. That was how they built him. That was how they built Nikita Koloff. And I think they modelled a lot of that on what they wanted to do with Goldberg when Goldberg came along. I think Magnum was in the back of their minds. There was a blueprint. When they were booking him at the same time. So, but to the match itself, I still think it counts as a wrestling match. It's just a rarely used version of it. It's probably what a lot of the old territories were like that you don't have as much footage of when you see those photos of like the the sheiks matches in california where he's just bloods everywhere and classy freddie blassie's matches but with more with more skill probably than than what those two had although that's yeah. harsh i don't know but yeah just that says it seemed like it was a match that was almost about like now it would be pointed as an example of toxic masculinity it yeah they're two men that are so proud so prideful that they can't, you know, that they're willing to mutilate themselves to go be above and beyond. What Quite literally, because the finish well, of them... They're bleeding from the arms, they're, they're cutting yeah. each other. And quite literally the finish where um, the chair is smashed apart. Mm. And it gets like a section of it, like a little bit. Yeah, Tully sort of breaks off a leg and turns it into a spike. And you see it, it's a sharp object... That'll hurt. You know, uh, obviously they do the controlled stab. The controlled stab. What a way to call it. But, um, and it's really, and it's, I guess it is that sense of mono a mono. They would have probably just punched and kicked each other until they were both unconscious. And it was something beyond what a human's hands can do. Yeah. But it did take a weapon that should have been sort of, not available to them in a match. Although they were belting each other with the microphone, which was, and it's a nasty sound. Big thing as well. Dunking against them. Like the, what the microphones that they have in WWE in theory have that little bit of cushion on them. No cushion there. No, it's just the metal one. Yeah. It's just a metal rod essentially. I, but it's just the, uh, the hatred is yeah. the fact that he's stabbing them. <laughs> like... And that when Tully Blanchard... And Tully Blanchard can't bring himself to say, I quit. He needs the match to finish, but he still won't say, I quit. So all he says is, yes. Yeah. Which is like the conventional way of submitting. Because that's that notion of, I quit, that there's so much significance. As Gordon Sully would say, five letters, two words, I quit. quit. Um, and so... And like, when he did a little introduction to it, um, you know, decades later on a WWE playlist or DVD of the greatest Starcade matches ever, he said, see if I said I quit, see if I said it. And, and like, when it would be brought up in, in later months and weeks and months and whatever, Tully would always say, I never quit. I think he brought it up, like, after Magnum TA was injured and couldn't wrestle anymore. He mentioned yeah. it once or something like that. Um, and then very soon after this, he joins the, the four horsemen are formed and Tully sort of becomes reinvented and fused with Dusty Rose for the TV title. Then Ole Anderson leaves and then he becomes the tag team guy with Arn Anderson. They form one of the greatest tag teams of all time. And they are basically now being given a tribute act on TV every week with the revival. <laughs> um, so, now. yeah, that's 
so I, there's not much more to say about it. Just go and watch it. You'll see a very different kind of wrestling match that you you couldn't see now. You no. couldn't see now in the WWE because the WWE wouldn't allow it. And I don't think you could see it on the indie scene because the indie scene where they do allow blood, they want to do sort of more weapon-based stuff. And um, like yeah. two guys at points, you know, rolling around on the mats probably wouldn't but, be enough for an audience nowadays and like no and, and like and guys like jimmy havoc who would maybe do a match like this would want to do more innovative unusual spots cleverer yeah. spots that will get an audience to react in a different kind of way i mean the crowd reactions in this is an interesting kind of they almost seem disturbed by what they're seeing and then when the spike comes into play there are screams of fear and horror by the women it's the, in the first crowd. time you really hear noise from the crowd, yeah. but not in a bad way. Like the the silence isn't um, jarring, like someone watching their first match in a Japanese crowd. Yeah, it's, it's um, not quite. It's not quite out of boredom. Yeah, or like with a flat Monday Night Raw. That's that's not a slight against Japanese. It's just obviously the first time you see a Japanese match. Like, why aren't they cheering? But sometimes you get used I think to... that, I, sometimes I think that notion of what the Japanese crowds are like is a bit exaggerated, just based on some of the matches we're watching in this list. True. Or maybe maybe an undercard match where it's like two young lions wrestling each other. You know, it's different. Yeah. But yeah. So yeah. so I'm giving this match five stars. I don't think Dave Meltzer ever rated it. So maybe he would give it five stars now. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, Simon, would it get your five stars? It wouldn't. Um, it's very, <laughs> it's very, very good storytelling, um, but it's just not a five star wrestling match in, in my eyes. Well, here's my question though: If Dave Meltzer had given it five stars and it had been in our list, would it be above your number ten, uh, Jaguar Yokota against Linus Asuka? <sighs> Probably not. Okay. It's for the possibly one of the reasons that the um, Flair Funk match didn't get in. Um, would be probably for a similar reason. It's just that I think the sav- I think they went too far into the savagery and they lost the wrestling a little bit in Flair Funk. This one it works, but. That if there was more wrestling like maneuver, if they blended it a bit more, this maybe... wasn't this wasn't a wrestling match. They'd had it their was... wrestling matches. Yeah, in a few they'd had their wrestling matches. Yeah, but again, it's personal preference. But yeah. that, that's what it would have took for me. I mean, it would be mine. I think looking at my list, I think I would probably have ranked it either third or fourth. I think I would have probably gone with it third. I think I would have put it above Flair Steamboat at Landover, uh, but not quite above Flair Steamboat uh, Clash of the Champions. Okay. So yeah. So Flair, so Flair would have to take, be happy with first, second, fourth, and fifth <laughs> if that match had been included. So that's the first one. We will get to our second match uh, very soon. But first, Simon, I believe we've had a, an entry in our mailbag that you're going to bring up right now. Uh, yes. So we have we've been had... asking people for emails off of uh, lmtyspod at gmail dot com. Super. Or you can tweet us directly at lmtyspod. Do we ever tweet? <laughs> no, but they could tweet us. Yeah. That'd be nice. It's a two-way street. <laughs> not that we're doing anything down our way of the street, but, you know. Well, at least we're not going the wrong way down a one-way street. one-way <laughs> street. Oh, no, I could get you to do that. Come on. Um, anyway, we've had a question from uh, Young Danny. Young Danny. Uh, in Brighton. He doesn't call himself Young Danny. He's not a rapper. 
But no, I imagine Daniel quite... Young, and it's just one of those things where you see Young, comma, damn it, Danny, or no, no. unfortunately. Um, what does Danny ask? He in asks squeaky prepubescent voice. <laughs> if um, Dave Meltzer had been hit by the Neuralizer from Men in Black, mm-hmm. and then rewatched all of the matches we have watched so far, mm-hmm. um, would any of them, or possibly if you had to put percentage to it, how many of them? would be given five stars by Dave Meltzer now. So we're assuming he has his knowledge of wrestling in general. He knows what wrestling is. He hasn't been neuralized that far. But But he's just lost the memories of the matches themselves from like 1983's Tiger Mask Dynamite Kid match to what? The 20th match on this list. Correct, yes. So basically 1983, April 2... November 1989 is wiped from his memory banks. Yes, and then he rewatches these. Yes, that's but, that's this. That's but he the... has, see, this is the problem. Like, I appreciate the question, but I think it's one that you know we can't speak for Dave Meltzer. We can only speak for ourselves, and we can try. And, no. I mean, we're trying to interpret Dave Meltzer. Yes. Um, through his through the films that he through the matches that he likes, because there probably is something that tells you something about you know if someone's favorite books are fucking American Psycho and you know. Um, uh, something else, uh, you know, some of Stephen King's more gruesome novels, and that says something about a person. So I guess that's some of the things we might try and understand about Meltzer as it goes along. I think we'll need more time and more matches to do that. So like I said, so we can only qualify this answer, really. But what I would say is, I think I think all the Flair Steamboat matches he would give five stars to, including the one that's not even in our top ten list. Yeah. Um, I think he would give... I don't think you give Flair Funk five stars. No, uh, I don't. I definitely don't think you would give um, Yamazaki against uh, Takada five stars. Um, um, but I think you would still see the uh, the, the merit, si- the historical significance of them. And mm. if he found out that that version of himself that he can't remember anymore gave these matches five stars, he'd be. Well, given that I still hold knowledge of historical context, I can understand why. You know. Yeah, yeah, I get where you're coming from. Um, I I think any of the matches that end in like double DQs and no contests and all that kind of stuff, I doubt he would give five stars to, like the handsome Brody Funk's match or the first Tiger Mask Dynamite Kid match. Um, so it's really viewed as the devil now, isn't it? Yeah, I think the majority of the Ric Flair matches he would give five stars to. Like I said, I think you give them all to the Steamboat mm. matches. Um, I don't know if you give it to the... Um, Having the watched so matches. much... I'm just piggybacking Danny's question with one of my own. And we've we've sort of talked about it, but I feel this is a great point of reflection. Mm. Uh, having watched so much Ric Flair uh, for uh, our list so far, well, Dave's list so far, uh, what do you make of here the argument... Um, from some quarters that he, it's it's the same. It's well, I think same. we addressed that, especially in the Flair Funk match. That so we're kind of repeating ourselves, but it's been a while since we recorded some of those. I think he came to repeat himself, maybe in the era that a lot of us came to watch him. Yeah. So, which is really, and he himself will admit that he started to doubt himself, especially from like '98 onwards. Um, that he had like crises of confidence and um, 
Lance Storm said once that he made a called a spot that made no sense within the context of the match. I said like um, when we were talking about Ric Flair working as a face that it frustrated me so much when he did wrestle Hogan a heel Hogan that they were still doing heel Flair face Hogan spots in those matches. Maybe they were just ahead of their time. If because like, oh, because some matches are cheered and booed. Yeah, but then when you look at um, but then when you look at Flair Funk, and you can see that he will refrain from doing those classic Flair spots that were already classic spots at that point. Yeah. If it wasn't to serve the match, so I would say it's like when uh, tell you what's a good example. Like when nine, in ninety eight ninety nine, loads of kids in school suddenly got into wrestling. And some of them then got into it more because of the Attitude Era. And they would try and start to sound knowledgeable and say to me, well, Steve Austin's actually not that good. Like, maybe they've started seeing Rob Van Dam matches. So they're like, yeah. that's what a real wrestler's supposed to be. Like, Steve Austin just punches and kicks. I would try... I'd know I gave to at least two different people a copy of my Survivor Series 1996 VHS with the first Stone Cold Steve Austin Bret Hart match, and this was pre neck surgery Austin, and in that one he's like this is Austin perfect. on the on his way up. This yeah. is this is Austin kind of a, as a almost a perfect wrestler in that he can brawl and he is that badass and he is running his mouth, but he is also able to have these great high intensity wrestling sequences, bump heavy that he just wasn't able to take after the neck injury, and he had to protect himself and he couldn't take as many bumps and he couldn't sell as much and he couldn't pull off things like top rope superplexes and what have you um and in that match the story of that match is that he is out wrestling the wrestler's wrestler you know the idea of someone who is who has got that that brawling mentality but they can back it up with wrestling skill yeah like they're a perfect combination i can do both it's just this is more fun yeah yeah exactly um so it's it's a case of and maybe it was also injuries piling up that Flair couldn't do the hard work that he used to be able to. I actually rewatched and recently. Miles on the clock. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, like I rewatched the WrestleMania twenty four match recently with him and Shawn Michaels, and they try and do some of the classic Flair spots like basic head scissors takedown, headlock takedown, head scissors turnover, land on top, one two bridge up from a lying down position, and they couldn't do the bridge up. And it almost was right that they couldn't do the bridge up because it was a sign that this needed to be Flair's last match. It wasn't, but, you know, mm. so it was almost within the story of the match itself it was telling these stories. like, And also within that match, they do do the bit where Sean's going to throw him off the top rope and he stops him and he actually hits it, you know, and they joke he's never hit that before. And now we know what he did, you know? Several Back times. Back when his matches had more variables to them. Yeah. He has his spots that he loves, but... You know, so, did so does everyone. So does fucking Hiroshi Tanahashi. So does Kazuchika Okada. You know, no one's going to have a go at Okada for doing a drop kick every match. Well, no, it's beautiful. You know? So no one should have a go at Ric Flair doing a Flair flip in the corner if he's still able to do it because it was always such a cool visual. Yeah. I'm always a bit more wary when a wrestler's, like, when a wrestler's key spots are either reversals of moves, like I've said, you know, you can't powerbomb Kidman. Or a more recent example of that is Trevor Lee's, one of his trademark moves being reversing a crossbody. And you can't armbar Roman. Yeah. Roman yeah. would always do the powerbomb. Exactly, spot. yeah. Uh, or so that, or your or your trademark move being a bump. Not always a huge fan of, but then it's Ric Flair and it kind of, you know. It's sort of like Shane McMahon. 
Yeah. Well, it's it's a bump off of a move, I suppose. Like, Flair's fr- front, you know, face-first bump kind of works because he can just be hit with any kind of thing and it will do it. Yeah. But it's like that he always has to be back-body dropped. A wrestler that doesn't back-body drop anyone else will back-body drop Ric Flair. Yeah. You know? It's like a wrestler that doesn't throw uh, a big overhand right at Cena will for yeah. the four move, five moves of Doom. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, anyone, like I said, anyone who's wrestling Kidman, whether they do it usually or not, will try to powerbomb him. You know, it's just, it's just that I'm not a huge fan of, but I'm not a wrestler, so I can shut up. Yeah, <laughs> that's as far as I'm concerned. So after we've shut up talking about that, let's talk about the last part of this, which is the second match. So now we're looking at, well, this one we've, we've cheated a little bit. It's a bit later than the, the the last match on this list. That's why we had a little bit of a debate about whether or not yes. we use this one. But it was also because of how it falls with the next one, and there's a match I really want to do for the next one that falls in it. So this was really... And also what I wanted to do, one of the reasons I wanted to do this was we picked, and I'm sure there are other matches we could have gone with. Uh, I can't think of them off the top of my head, but I'm sure they're out there. But I really wanted to do, because like I said at the time we recorded it, the fact that there's only one match, in all these matches you know we've got so many Masao matches that we've already watched we've got so many more to watch well, we've only watched one actually to be fair a couple at this point um, but we've got more to watch we've got so many Kabashi matches we've got so many Kawada matches we saw one match with one of the three members of the three Musketeers in New Japan who were doing as big a business as popular a fan base in 90s Japan and outside of 90s Japan as all Japan was doing at the time. So, we're going to cover for this one, the final of the very first G1 Climax. It's August 1991, it's Sumo Hall, and it's Kijimuto against Masahiro Chono. Yes. Chono, who's wrestled, I think, an extra match in the G1, because yes. his block was ended in a tie, yes. didn't it? so he had to have a, or a draw, as us Brits like to call it. Yeah, so. sorry. Uh, and, yeah, so we faced Kijimuto in this final. And this is the first G1 climax. So this is the one that's setting, just as Jumbo Saruta and Genichiro Tenru and Stan Hansen are setting the standard for what a triple crown match is... This was the match that set the standard of what a G1 Climax final supposed to be. What's interesting about the G1 Climax is that it's changed its form now over time. As it was, it was basically one long weekend of sumo hall shows, one night after the other, where there were blocks of four, I think. Two blocks of four. But then as time's gone on, you know, it's gradually is like two blocks of five, six, seven, eight, nine. Access to, to wrestlers now, has, has expanded. And they're touring all across Japan. And this year, they'll be doing two ma- uh, at least one round of matches in the US, I believe. That was their announcement. I could have sworn that was their announcement on uh, one of their many announcements on January 4th. And so, Simon, had you watched much Muto? Well, you watched a bit of Muto. Had you watched any of Chono? Uh, not a lot of Chono, No. Mm-hmm. Uh, I knew Chono's. No. Oh, no. Mm. Um, the only th- thing I really knew about Chono is I think he was one of the last people to wrestle China. Yes, yes. Chono was an interesting one in that, well, if you look at the Three Musketeers, they kind of all had their own particular strengths. Um, Hashimoto was the striker, 
he was the one that was more the martial artist and kind of because of that fit with Inoki's mentality and sort of New Japan's King of Sports style, he was really the one that was presented as probably the top star out of the three of them. He was the Roman Reigns of that trio. Yeah. He was the more frequent IWGP champion, the more frequent headliner of Dome shows. So does that make Muto the Rollins then? Yes, Muto was like the workhorse when he could be asked to be the workhorse. Muto was the flyer. Muto was the more Americanized. Muto loved the All Japan style of wrestling. He was the more conventional pro wrestler out of the three. And Chono was the Fez protege. He's the one that could do it on the ground. His finisher was the STF. He was also kind of the coolest looking one out of all of them. Maybe not based on the tights you're seeing here. Mm-hmm. But he, he, he gradually, he, he was known to be like the Yakuza's favorite wrestler. And so uh, okay. he really bought into that and he became the underboss and the leader of all the factions. He turned heel around 93, 94 and then took on the black leather look, eventually became the leader of NWO Japan and all that kind of stuff. And he was, more importantly, he was Mr. August. Chono was synonymous with the G1 Climax because whilst, whilst Hashimoto held the belt for years at a time, like Okada broke, it was it was Hashimoto's record that Okada broke for like a longest reign. Not most defenses, he, it was Nagata that he beat for that and then Tanahashi, sorry. It was Tanahashi he beat for that. But um, Hashimoto was the guy, like he was the one that actually won the war against UWFI after Muto lost the belt to Takada. Um, you know, so... This was kind of the two and three. And what's also interesting about the, the three musketeers was they were ultimately kind of self-made because Inoki was not passing the torch. Yeah. And whilst Fujinami and Choshu did lose to them, there was no significant moment like there was when Misawa beat Saruta in a match that we'll come to in our next episode. Um, so we kind of spoiled it there, but there you go. Well, the list is online. You didn't spoil that. Um... So, that's some historical context. So, it's kind of like how with the Attitude Era, Austin Rock, Hogue, uh, Austin Rock, Triple H, kind of became stars through themselves, because they none of them had that significant win. Like, Austin became a star from a loss. Like, he never got a win over Bret Hart. Bret Hart never got a win over Hogan. That passing of the torch thing's not a myth, but it's not maybe as significant. And so, none of them got wins over Inoki or anything like that. Yeah. So... It was kind of the fact that they stole the show at this G1 Climax. This G1 Climax was kind of their coming out party. Very significantly, it was really Chono's coming out party because they debuted against each other in 1984. They learnt... They, they were all in the same class. And um, Chono was... Um, had never beaten Muto. Never beaten him at this point. Okay. Because... Yeah, sorry. going into the match because obviously I'd seen it's one of the few times when I do this because as as we've mentioned in the past I try and avoid knowing who wins mm. um, but I had read up on the G1 uh, 1991 G1 because uh, I think Muto's last match before this or a match a couple of days ago he'd taken on Vader and that always struck me as a massive size difference between Muto and Vader Pillman claims it was the greatest wrestling match he'd ever seen because he was there for that Okay. So some people sometimes falsely attribute that as a match that, that um, uh, Meltzer gave five stars, which I don't believe he did. No, that's um, not on the list we're working off of. No, but like I said, this is just one list. There are a number of lists out there. So mm. there are people that will probably dispute but some of the matches. Be because done. I knew that at the start, when you see Chono and Muto against each other, Muto looks nervous and. 
it's because to me because off the back of that that he'd already gone through that he had had to face vader in this tournament Mm. and he's got to the final and it's another tall dude that he's going up against i mean i know now the tall dude sorry chono chono it looks taller than yeah but he's not like a monster not like a monster but i always saw them as kind of equals in the size and strength and everything and just Muto's specialties were that he could fly, and Chono's specialties were that he could mat wrestle. And, and when they go to the mat, it, at the start, it's Chono that kind of controls it, and Muto that has to go out and, and take a breather. Yeah, like Muto gets like a little bit of an arm bar in, but the first like, stanza, if you will, is Chono's. But it's an amazing finishing straight. I think it's one of the best sort of finishing straights of any of the matches that we've covered. Both guys are in peril at at various points. And they each have great sort of counters to the other ones. My favourite one being that Muto comes off the top. Muto gets the STF in first, if you think about it as well. Which is really like a ballsy move. But uh, the spot I was just going to say is Muto's going off the top. Probably going to try and maybe do a drop kick or something. Chono tries to drop kick him. And it's mid-flight. He turns it into a leapfrog. Yes. That is a beautiful moment because um, it's, like, if I'm nitpicking, I saw that it took like a second too long to sort of get the timing in place for that one. But it is still a beautiful, beautiful spot. Um, and then uh, M- Muto immediately like, hits, a, a, hits a back suplex with all the connotations it has straight off of it as well. So he's like, oh, f- oh like that is usually like people emptying their, like, emptying their toolkit. When the back suplex is stuck. Well, it is just they're throwing everything at each other. Like, Muto does a pile driver on the outside. Yeah. Ultimately, Chono actually ironically... There's back-to-back kind of becomes... pile drivers, which only gets a two count. Yeah. Which, having my rant about pile drivers, did hurt me a little bit, but it, it was a cool spot. Yeah. But, um... The, the, the um... Yeah, they're just hitting each other with stuff, and both look in trouble, and both fight hard and they both feel like there's points where you're like how is this guy still in the match but it's not like it ever goes to the point of absurdity like um maybe some of the joshi matches that we've been covering oh jeez um and then when Mu, you know when chono gets the win with a power bomb there is that sense that muto still had it's like it's at three and a quarter that Muto yeah. could have kicked out no muto wasn't sparked out it was just like sort of um Chono like sort of collapses on top of him, and I think it yeah. is purely the body weight yeah, which yeah. made that a free. I think it's a sense of two young men. It's kind of I keep going to tennis, but I guess it's because tennis has been dominated by these great rivals. But it's kind of like Murray Djokovic in a Grand Slam final because they were born literally a week apart. So they played each other in the juniors. They were going up at the same time. They both had to deal with. Federer and Nadal above them, which is kind of like how Muto and Chono had to deal with, like, uh, Choshu and Fujinami, you know. Um, and they finally <laughs> made it, and it's against each other. This is the this is the 90s. This is what it's going to be. It's not Misawa winning, like, claiming it off Saruta. It's them claiming it for themselves. Yeah. Um, like they, but there is no, yeah, you're right. There isn't a torch being passed. They have both carved their way to the final. Yeah. Of this tournament themselves, there's no like 
Young Lion versus Old Pro. Which sometimes the G1 finals are. Like, one of my favourite G1 finals is Kijimuto's match against Yuji Nagata. And that's Yuji Nagata's graduation ceremony, essentially. Yeah. Um, there, there are other ones that happen. Like, they do the, the, the old man against the young buck. Well, no, not really. But they do, like, like Ricky Choshu wins the 96 G1 against Chono. And that's, like, the, the old gunslinger's last stand storyline basically so they yeah. can tell stories within it but this was like these guys are the future this is this is what the scene's going to be and at the end of the match Hashimoto as was the tradition at the time the other com- entrants of the tournament will usually be on the ring side watching on and Hashimoto comes in and they do the Inoki 1, 2, 3 you know da yeah. pose and it's those three together saying this is what this is what it is going forward and Hashimoto was the guy that was in the semi-final playoff too. Uh, that lost to Chono going in. Chono submitted him, didn't he? I don't know. I haven't seen the match. Um, but yeah, this is so. Simon, would you give this non-five star match five stars? Whilst I go and see if I can find what Meltzer's rating for it was. Um, no, not quite. It is again a really, really, really good outing. Uh, to me. It lost a little bit because some of the s- table they set early on uh, with the legwork, uh, Muto's legwork of Chono, uh, you know, that you could have just gone back to that a bit more. Um, I don't know about this stance that we take, Simon, as like us as the experts telling these guys what they're doing right or wrong. I don't know if this is the right attitude to have, in all honesty. No, but... I don't know. That's, it's my opinion. Um, yeah, but maybe we can phrase our opinions better. I don't know. True, true, true. It's just I don't know. It, it's just seemed they foc- he focused on the legs so much at the start, and then we just don't see it again. I think just from a storytelling point of view, there should be there should have been a bit more leg work. Well, Meltzer gave this match four and a half stars. Yeah, um, I'm broadly in line with that. I guess. Okay. Uh, well. Again, to go back to my Magnum Tully question, would this rank above Linus Asker against Jaguar Yakota in your? Top I'd be 10? more inclined to yes. Okay, how about Genichiro Tenru against Jumbo Saruta? Like I said, how this was laying the groundwork for what a G One Climax final was. They were laying the groundwork for what a Triple Crown match is. Ooh, now trying to put my. If I put my, oh, I love the way those two big dudes just wailed on each other, <laughs> uh, and I, I don't want to sound. It was, also, like... it was also kind of the the underdog finally getting that big win as well. So it was a similar story in that regard yeah. as well. They're very different versions of the same thing. If that makes any sense, it's like we have like the brawl sort of power of mm. all Japan versus the uh, technique and high flying nature of New Japan. Mm. Um. Oh God, they're almost interchangeable in that sense. Do you get where I'm coming from? Yeah, I understand. Yeah, I'm. I'm but so they're sort of around. If if one's above the other, it's merely by. Well, then would it? Okay, if it did overtake it, if you thought about it more, we don't have the time for it now. Mm. Would it overtake Flare Windham One, which is your number eight pick? Probably yes. Okay, would it overtake Flare Windham Three? No. Okay, so if it was anywhere, it was around that 8-9 area. Yeah. 
Okay, I I think on my list, I'd rank it above Flare Windham One as well. I'd rank it above Flare Funk. Um, yeah, I'd rank it above Saru to Tenru, uh, Choshu Yatsu. Um, I think I would rank it above Tenru Saruta. And I think I would rank it above Yokota Asuka, so it would be my number six. Okay, okay. I wouldn't put it above Tenru Kawada against Stan Hansen Gordy, though. Yeah. Not quite. Although, maybe historical context, I could make a case for it going above it on that level. But I don't know. These are technicalities that maybe people aren't interested in. And that's where we're going to end it here. Next time, it won't be as long, because we're only covering ten more matches, as opposed to the twenty that time. Um, I I mean I already have my idea for the match that I want us to cover for the non five star match. Okay. Um, we'll we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. But if people want to get in touch with you, Simon, how can they do so? Uh, then get in touch with me on Twitter, where I'm so known as Simon Cross Free. Uh, so known because my podium was locked out by Ric Flair matches. Very good. How can people get in touch with you, Lorcan? They can get in touch with me through Gmail with a Lorcan Mullen at the start of it. That's L-O-R-C-A-N-M-U-L-L-A for acrimonious, N for normalising. I was going to say not acrimonious, but you hate it when I do that. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, normalising. <laughs> I don't know, we've normalised our levels together. Uh that's my Twitter, Facebook, uh, Letterboxd account. If you want to see more of the ma- movies, I've given five stars and four and a half stars and what have you. Because um, I'm sure you care. But until then, our next episode, which we probably already previewed in the, the previous one, is Jumbo Saruta against Mitsuharu Masawa, our first match of the 90s. Arguably one of the most historically significant matches in the history of not just Japanese wrestling, but wrestling in general. And especially going to affect the way Dave Meltzer rates his matches going forward. Um, but until then, my name's Lorcan Mullen. My name's Simon Cross. Thank you for letting us tell you something. Have a five-star time. Until the next time. <laughs>